Amen. It's a delight to be in Minnesota. My little grandson says, Minnesota. I asked him one day, are you cold steel? And he said, no, Nani, I'm a Minnesota boy. I don't get cold. So it's wonderful to be in Minnesota. Let me say thank you for the district leadership, for the invitation to come, Pastor Mark, Pastor uh, Ross, Pastor Doug. I want to honor Brother St. John. What a wonderful man that's led this district all these years. Thank you, Brother St. John, for all that you've done. It's recorded in heaven. Amen. You have some wonderful leaders now, and we appreciate them so much. Let me say thank you, Minnesota, for being so kind to my son. Minnesota has been wonderful to my son, and we appreciate that from our heart. Pastor Joe, thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart with us, for convicting us, or letting the Spirit convict us through you for the challenges that you've made to us, for the encouragement from our heart. Thank you so much. We're not going to leave this place stirred. We're going to leave it changed. I'm stirred many times, but stirring is not the answer. It's being changed. Give us a burden that's so strong that it'll last when the tears are gone. I'm tired of being stirred and not being changed. So I believe we're leaving this conference changed by the word of God through the power of God. We're going to leave changed. We're going to be different people because of what we've allowed God to do in our lives. Folks, the power that we experience is his power and not mine. It's the power that works within us. The Apostle Paul, this is not my message, this is free. The Apostle Paul, you're not paying for this. The Apostle Paul says, but I have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the ecstasy of the power is of God and not of us. When I was in the third grade one time, thank God only one time, and I'm sure my teacher said that. My mother and daddy bought me a pair of Ivy League shoes. You have to be about my age to know what they are. They're Saddleoxfords with a strap on the heel that had a buckle on them. So if you had a pair of Ivy League shoes in that day and time, you were uptown. Now, when I started to school, my mother said to my elder brother, son, keep an eye on your sister. You never know what she's going to do. So kind of watch out for her. One day, two girls met me in the hall, larger than me, and said, we're going to take those shoes off of you. What do you think about that? I stood there trembling in my shoes until out of the corner of my eye, I saw my elder brother and one of his buddies headed my way. And I looked those girls in the eye and straightened up and said, do it if you think you're big enough. It wasn't my power I was trusting in. How many is getting me tonight? It's a power of an elder brother that's headed my way. 
when my elder brother got there, he laid his hand on the shoulder of one of those girls and said, what's going on here? She said, not a thing. He said, there better not be. That's my little sister. And anytime you think you're going to bother her, I will always be around. And they said, yes, sir. And I went, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. What am I saying? The word says, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the elder brother will lift up a standard against him. It's not my power, but it's his power. Amen? Not stirred, but changed by the word and by the power of Almighty God. And we're glad tonight for that power. I'm going to share with you tonight, as the request of Pastor Mark, uh, the some of the details of the tragedy that we faced and some things I learned during this tragedy. As Brother Pastor Joe said, we grow in times of tension. I'm living witness of that. We grow in times of tension. But before I share that with you, I'm going to share with you the funniest story I ever heard. Now, let me tell you something, church. Laughter is healing. Weeping is cleansing. As long as your eyes leak, your head won't swell. So we're going to laugh and we're going to cry. I was doing a missionette retreat in the state of Tennessee. Missionette director said to me, I want to tell you what happened the other day to my friend at the mall. My friend and another lady went to the mall to shop. About three o'clock in the afternoon, the other lady said to my friend, I need to go home and start the evening meal, so I'm going to leave. And the lady said, my friend said, well, I'm going to finish shopping. And said, when that lady left, this woman's friend said to herself, I'm getting a little weak. So I'm going into the store here to get me a candy bar and a Coke. So she went into a pharmacy there, bought a cat cat candy bar and a Coke. Went out into the mall to sit on a bench there to eat her candy bar and drink her Coke. And said there was a gentleman sitting on the other end of the bench. And she said, I didn't say anything to him and he didn't say anything to me. And said, I pinched off a section of that candy bar and when I did, he did. He didn't say, I'm hungry, may I, or anything. And she said, when I broke off another section of that candy bar, he did. And said, when we finished the candy bar and I finished my Coke, I went on to finish my shopping. She said, I came out of the store. There stood that same gentleman with a donut on a napkin and said, that ran all over me, that he'd eat my candy bar and then buy a donut. So she said, I just walked over, leaned down, and took a bite out of the donut. She said, he looked at me, he looked at the donut, and he looked perplexed. She said, I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. She said, I went on to my car to go home, got in my purse to get out my keys, and there was my candy bar. <laughs> he already had his laying on the bench. She said, there I had eaten that man's candy bar, <laughs> taken a bite out of his donut, And she said, I know when he got home that day, he said to his wife, I met the hungriest woman at the mall today. I tried to buy a candy bar, she ate it. Tried to buy a donut, she took a bite out of it. She said, I prayed that he wouldn't show up in my church on Sunday morning. 
and say, there's the hungry woman I met the other day at the mall. That's a true story. It didn't happen to me, but it could have. Amen. May the 14th, 1988, our youth group was going to take a trip they'd taken annually for nine previous years. They were going to a place called Kings Island, Ohio. My husband had always, let me stop here and say something to you that may not know. My husband went to be with the Lord in April of 2019. I don't think I explained that to you yesterday, but that's the reason he's not here. He's left me for a better man. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's really what happened. <laughs> So he's gone on to be with the Lord. We had 52 years together. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful, wonderful life. Just had marvelous life with this man. He was a wonderful man of God. My respect for him never changed from the first handshake with fellowship To his last breath. My respect for him never changed. Folks, that's wonderful to have that kind of respect for somebody. But he was absolutely a man of God. I miss him, but God has been good to me. And who was it today? I think Pastor Joe made this statement. Today, his leaving did not delete my call. So that's why I continue to go on. But my husband had always gone on this trip with them because he's a rides person. They never got too high, too fast, or too wild for him. He may come off of there looking like death, chewing on crackers, but he would get on them. This particular day, my father was celebrating his 79th birthday. So my, I have two brothers, and they were coming from out of town to celebrate our dad's birthday. So my husband said, I'm not going to go on the trip because I want to stay home and celebrate Dad's birthday. Our son was 15 years old at the time, so he was going to go on the trip with the youth group. So we awakened our son very early on Saturday morning, had breakfast, had prayer with him. My husband left, taking him to the church. And he said to me, honey, if there's not enough chaperones going, I will go ahead and go with them. If there is, he said, I'll return. So he returned in about an hour, and I said, uh, how many people did you have? And he said it was 67 people. It's a 66-passenger bus, and the driver made 67. He said, I had prayer with them before they pulled out of the parking lot. said, there was a person in every window waving, goodbye, Pastor, we'll see you this evening. And my husband said many times, those faces would flash before his eyes that never returned. I want to stop here and say something to you. God didn't save us from trouble. He saved us from sin. Okay. So we've got to get this in our spirit. It doesn't mean when I get saved that I don't have any more trouble. I'm not saved from trouble. I'm saved from sin. Things do happen. Tragedy happens in life. That's life. Things do happen. But when we know God... 
It makes a difference when those things happen. We had a wonderful day with our family. After our family had gone home, my husband said, I'm going to the church because the men had prayer time every Saturday at 9 p.m. praying for Sunday services. He said, now I won't return until the bus comes in. I can bring Alan home. Won't have to make but one trip. About 10.30 that evening, I walked into our son's room, turned on his light, let down his bed, put his Pepsi beside of his bed. He has to get his own candy bar. I don't want to spoil him. Amen. <laughs> As I walked through the door of our son's room, Something spoke to my spirit, these words. You better hope that boy returns to this room this evening. And I thought, God, what a horrible thought. Stood in the doorway of his room and began to pray, thinking he was the only one involved. And I began to plead the blood upon him. My spirit was so troubled about 11 o'clock, I called my husband at the church, and I said, honey, has the bus gotten in yet? And he said, no, I'm getting a little concerned because they were going to be in early so they could have plenty of rest to be in church tomorrow. But he said, possibly they stopped at McDonald's, got back to the bus late. I'm sure they'll be arriving here in a few minutes. 12 o'clock, May the 15th, my husband called me, 12 p.m., or 12 a.m., excuse me, called me and said, Honey, I need you here at the church. One of the fathers has just called and said, Pastor, this is Conrad Garcia. My son has just called me from Carroll County Hospital in Carrollton, Kentucky. Our bus has been involved in a tragedy. I told you why we say tragedy. It's not an accident when people drink and drive. It's a tragedy. And they're taking our children to six different hospitals. The first words out of my mouth were these. Dad, how about Alan? Everything we have is on that bus. He said, I don't know anything. All I know is I need you here at the church. When I arrived at the church, I walked through the double doors of the auditorium. Some of the parents had already arrived to pick up their children. So my husband had to tell them what he knew. That's all he knew. They were already laying on their faces at the altar, crying and praying for their children. Now, I want to stop here and make a statement tonight, and I want you to hear it. The folks that laid their faces on the carpet, praying for their children, did not care what the color of the carpet. How many knows we get bent out of shape over trivial things? when there's things that's really important in life. My husband tried to call the city police, the state police. They didn't know anything as of yet. He said, I'm going to call Carroll County Hospital in Carrollton, Kentucky, where the father said he was going. My husband called the hospital there. The lady answered, and she said, Reverend, let me let you talk to the state police that is here. You do have some young people here in the hospital." but let me let you talk to the state police. State police came on the line, and he said, Reverend, before I tell you anything, listen to me. Your son is okay. Alan Tennyson is standing here beside me. 
I met him out on the highway, and I said to another state police that arrived on the scene, I do not know who these people are, and said, your son heard me make that statement. He walked up to me and said, sir, I can tell you who we are. We're from First Assembly of God in Radcliffe, Kentucky. And he said, I said to your son, son, do you happen to know the name of your pastor? He said, yes, sir, it's my dad, and I need to get a hold of my dad. And he said, son, you can't get a hold of your dad now because we do not need hysterical parents on the side of this highway and other people getting killed. And he said, your son said to me, sir, if you talk to my dad, would you please tell him I'm okay? My mother and dad need to turn their attention to the other people that's coming in. So please tell them that I'm okay. And he said, Reverend, do you understand? Your son is okay. I do not have any information for you now. I will call you back as soon as I do. But I'm telling you to keep all of the parents at the church. How many knows when you've got a child in trouble? What's your first thought? Get me there as quick as you can. So my husband had to set the parents down and say, we can't do anything right now until we know something. We've got to stay here. We can't do anything. You don't know where your child is. You don't know if he's in a hospital. You know if he made it. You don't know. I want to tell you something, church. That's some long hours that you live. But the grace of God. But the grace of God. The coroner told me that night or early that morning when he came to the church, he said, Miss Tennyson, your husband is going to have a heart attack or a stroke because a human heart is not able to handle what he's getting ready to face. But he didn't have a heart attack or stroke. But anyway, in about an hour, the state police called back and he said, Reverend, how many people did you have on that bus? He said, I had 67 people. He said, all right, here's what we've got it narrowed down to. You have 27 fatalities. My husband said, do you mean dead? And he said, yes, sir. How about my associate pastor? Would he have been driving the bus? Yes, sir. He's a fatality. How about my youth pastor? Would he have been standing in the stairwell? Yes, sir. He's a fatality. And then there's a lady, he said, that's a fatality. You have three adults and you have 24 young people. My husband dropped the phone, placed his face in his hands, and sobbed and sobbed and said these words, Boys, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I let you go. I picked the phone up and I said, Sir, can you hold on just a minute while my husband regains his composure? And he said, yes, ma'am, I can. When my husband was able to talk again, he said, here's what happened. Drunken driver going the wrong way on the interstate. As I told you last evening, hit our church bus, right headlight to right headlight, driving the frame eight feet back onto the bus, breaking the spring system that flew into the gas tank, punctured the gas tank, 
And as the spring began to drag on the pavement, gasoline began to drip on the sparks created by the spring dragging on the pavement, and our bus became a burning inferno. Our son had gotten on to sit behind the driver. He looked eight seats back and saw a young lady that had just started attending the youth group, and she was seated alone. And he thought, this is not a good example for Christians. He got up from where he was seated, walked eight seats back to sit by the lady, young lady that had just started in the youth group. The young man that took his place behind the driver did not make it off. Alan said most of them had gone to sleep after they'd fueled up. And he said, I was asleep. And said, the first thing I heard was a scream. And he said, I jumped up to look to see what was going on. And the youth pastor, already engulfed in flames, standing there in the uh, stairwell, said to them, young people, get off as quickly as you can. I'm not going to make it. I'm going home. And he lifted both hands. Folks, you have to be saved to die that way. I'm not going to make it. I'm going home. And that's the last they heard from the youth pastor. Alan said, I stood up, tried to grab the young lady that was seated next to me to bring her with me. And he said, when I stepped out into the aisle, a group of young people just pushed me off the back of the bus. Now, besides the 27 we lost, 40 got off. And of the 40 that got off, 13 of them were burned beyond recognition and lived. They were in six different hospitals. One young lady called Alan and said, Alan, come over here and pray for me and ask, have I got any skin left on my face? Alan said, I walked over, laid my hand on her arm to pray for her. And he said, when I lifted my hand, her flesh to the bone came off in his arm, his hand. She was burned so badly. He said, Mom, I stood out on that hillside and I heard them crying from within to help them. And he said, after a while, it's silent. And he said, that's the worst silence you'll ever experience in all your life. You know that they're gone. Two brothers on the bus. One was Josh and the other an Aaron. Josh is 15. Aaron is 13. Josh is at the front of the bus. Aaron is at the back of the bus. Aaron could have gotten off the second one off. But he said, I've got a brother on this bus, and I'm not going to get off without my brother. So he said, I climbed over the seats, went under the seats, through the people, found my brother. He was already on fire. And said, I began to pull him along the bus aisle with my right hand. And the flames leaped up this arm and shoulder and burned off this ear. He said, I reached down to pull him along with my left hand. The flames leaped up that arm and shoulder, burned off this ear, the side of his face, and his nose. And he said, I had my brother to the door. And he said, Aaron, I'm not going to make it. Get off. Please don't let mom and dad lose both of us. With that, Josh took his last breath. They reached in and Aaron was the last one they could get out. And Aaron had to have 17 surgeries the first year. My husband preached 16 funerals in 48 hours. Once again, let me insert, but for the grace of God. 
Joshua's the first funeral that he preached on Thursday. And the mother came to me and said, Sister Tennyson, Aaron's going to have to have surgery at 3 o'clock this afternoon to save his life. And Josh's funeral is at 2. I want to go to my son's funeral, but my other son's begging me to stay here with him. What should I do? And I said, Becky, I can't tell you what to do, but what I can tell you is this. Josh will not know the difference, and it may be the means of Aaron living or dying if his mother's there with him. She chose to stay with him. The father went to the funeral, and Aaron, of course, did live after 17 surgeries. My husband preached that funeral on Thursday. Then he preached, I think it was 10 on Friday. And then he preached five or six on Saturday. We started burying them Saturday about 12 o'clock. And we put the last one in the ground at six o'clock Saturday afternoon. Folks, I want to tell you something. Even though we go through hard places in life, God has never failed us. He's still been there with us. You may say what happened to the man that hit the bus. I could go on and on, but I'm going to preach. You may say what happened to the man that hit the bus. Well, he got 16 years and he served out nine years. But you know what? We had to forgive him. Remember this. Those that hurt you cannot heal you. Only Jesus can heal you. And he can heal without a scar. Those that hurt you cannot heal you. Only Jesus can heal you. Remember when Peter uh, cut off the ear of the high priest's servant? Jesus didn't tell Peter to heal him. He hurt him. We know enough about Peter. He had to put it on upside down to let him know it's just the wrong place at the right time. Amen. But Jesus said, hand me the ear, and Jesus can heal without a scar. Do so you know what my husband had to start doing? He had to start preaching forgiveness. To be healed to let God heal you, it begins by forgiving the person that hurt you. The person that hurt you will never heal you. But Jesus is the only one that can heal you. See, we can be hurt, but we can keep the hurt going. Let me give an example. If I scratch Pastor Dean here, and I make a sore on his arm, but it begins to scab over. But if he keeps picking at it, it's not going to heal. Now, I did the initial hurt, but he's keeping it open. How many is hearing me tonight? So we, my husband, had to keep preaching forgiveness. We're going to have to forgive the man that hit the bus. Because if Jesus is going to heal us, it begins by forgiving. Now listen to me. Forgiveness doesn't release the person from responsibility. They're still responsible for what they did. He still had to serve some time. We didn't have anything against him, but the state of Kentucky did. So he had to serve time because of what he did. Even though we forgave him, he was still responsible for what he did. We're so afraid if we forgive somebody, they go scot-free. No, they don't. They still answer for what they've done. All it does is free us up, amen, when we forgive. So we had to forgive the man that hurt uh, our people. But you know, during that time, I asked a question. 
I said, Jesus, where were you? You may say, now, we don't question God. Listen to me. We don't question God's authority, but we all have questions. Jesus, where were you? And he told me where he was. And he took me to Mark chapter 6, begin with the 45th verse. And we're going to read it tonight. And he says, I was at the same place that I was when my disciples were going through a storm. I want to tell you something tonight, folks. Jesus didn't rebuke the disciples for not being able to steal the storm. He rebuked them for not having faith during the storm. Let me say that again. He didn't rebuke the disciples for not being able to steal the storm. He rebuked them for not having faith during the storm. So we still had to trust God and look to him and know that he was going to bring us through. I'll tell you this before I read. On a Sunday morning after the tragedy, on Saturday evening, my husband went to Carrollton, Kentucky. They told him he'd have to go to the bus to help identify the bodies. So he went to Carrollton, Kentucky, and he said, Honey, you're going to have to stay at the church and preach because people are coming in, and they need to see one of us here. So we had about 1,500 that Sunday morning. We preach. We had 40 people saved that Sunday morning. After we preached, a reporter from CBS came up to me and said, I understand you're the pastor's wife here. I said, Yes, sir, I am. He said, I want to ask you a question. How is your faith in God now? Honey, I took that microphone. <laughs> How many believes I'd do that? <laughs> I looked him in the eye and I said, Sir, I've never walked through a valley this low. I've never shed as many tears as I've had in the last few hours. But I'll tell you one thing. I've never felt the love, the strength, the grace, and the power of God any stronger than I felt it this morning. I went that way for about 10 minutes. And finally he said, ma'am, I just asked a question. I didn't want a sermon. But let me tell you something. They put me on the evening news at 5.30 and I preached 10 minutes on CBS Evening News about the grace and the strength and the power of Almighty God. They didn't edit anything I said. That's a miracle, amen? But for 10 minutes I preached on the national news about the strength and the grace of God and how he brought us through. So I said, Jesus, where were you? So he brought me to Mark chapter 6. Verse 45, we're going to begin. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship, go to the other side before into Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into the mountain to pray. And when the even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them about the fourth watch of the night. He cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed he had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship. And the wind ceased and they were so amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Jesus said, number one, I was praying for you. The word says he went into the mountain to pray. The word says he's ever interceding before the Father in our behalf. He said, I was praying for you. Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired that he might sift thee as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that your faith fail not. 
Who would you rather have praying for you than Jesus? He's on first name basis with the Father, amen? So he said, that's exactly where I was. At the same place I was when my disciples were going through their storm, I was praying for you. Number two, he said, I was watching you. The word says he saw them. He saw them in their fear. He saw them toiling. He saw them rowing. He said, my eyes are ever upon you. Folks, Job said, if I, oh, I knew where I could find God. I go forward, he's not there. Backward, he's not there. On the right hand, on the left hand, he's not there. But he knoweth the way that I take. And when he's tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. What's he saying? You may not be able to see me. You may not be able to feel me. You may not be able to touch me, but that's not what's important my eyes are ever upon you he knows where we are he knows why we're where we are and he knows what to do about where we are his eyes are ever upon us the word says he was watching them not only was he praying for them not only was he watching number three he said I'll come walking upon the circumstance that's about to defeat you. What was about to defeat him? The winds and the waves. What did he come walking upon? The winds and the waves. He said, I'll come walking upon the circumstance that's about to defeat you, if you will allow me to. Tuesday morning, my husband had gone to Louisville, Kentucky to visit the children in the burn units. I was at home, and I said, God, if I can't hear from you today, I'm not going to make it. Now, I wanted you to hear me. How can I comfort these people? And my son made it off. My husband and I had to call in 24 sets of parents every 30 minutes and tell them about their child. We had to call in three companions and tell them about their wife or husband. Pastors, every time you do that, Pastor Mark, it feels like somebody reaches in and pulls your heart out. Brother St. John, you feel like you can't do it anymore. But God, but God, one couple had a son that was going to graduate from high school. They had driven a new automobile up in the church parking lot for his graduation gift. They were coming over and waiting on him to come in to see the excitement. Pastor Doug, we've got to call them in and say, Rick will never drive his car. One couple that made such an impression on my life. Bill and Maddie Nichols had a son, Billy. He was 18 years old, the only child they had. We had to call them in and say, Bill, Maddie, our bus has been involved in a tragedy. And Billy went on to be with the Lord. The father absolutely went all to pieces. But the mother looked up and said to her husband, First, we've got to thank God for 18 wonderful years. 
Listen to me, church. It takes more than a bedtime prayer or grace around the table to be able to do that. She got up from where she was seated. She came behind the desk where I was seated with my husband, hugged my neck, and here's what she said. Sister Tennyson, I rejoice with you that your son made it, but God's grace will be sufficient for us. That's called a testimony of trusting the grace and the love of Almighty God. He said, I will meet you at your point of need. Uh, when I said Tuesday morning, God, if, you, if I don't hear from you today, I'm not going to make it. I went over to the church. The telephone company had installed eight new lines in the church to handle the calls. We received over a thousand calls a day. Let me water my teeth here. We received over a thousand calls a day. I thank God for a family of God that calls and says, you don't know me, but I've been praying for you today. The board members told the ladies, you're going to have to handle these phones. Pastor and Sister Tennyson cannot talk to everybody that calls in. So they made a schedule and said at the end of the day, give them the messages. About 10 o'clock, I said if it's important, go after one of them. About 10 o'clock Tuesday morning, one of the young ladies came to me and said, Sister Tennyson, President Reagan's on the phone. Wants to talk to Pastor Tennyson. He's not here. Could you talk to him? I said, I guess I could. <laughs> I ran to the phone. President Reagan said, Miss Tennyson, this is President Ronald Reagan. Nancy and I are praying for you today. We're thinking about you today. And he said, if you need money or military, please let me know. Because we were right there at the gate of Fort Knox. That's why he said military. Whatever you need, let me know. He said, I'm going to give you this number. It rings in the Oval Office. I'm the only one that answers this. Please do not give it to anyone. I still have it. How much is it worth to you? If Ronald Reagan answers, you better check where you are. <laughs> he said, the reason I'm giving you this number, because I don't want you going through chain of command. I want you to be able to get what you want, but I want you to get to me immediately. We talked a few minutes. I thanked him. He hung up. 12 o'clock, one of the girls came to me and said, Sister Tennyson, Vice President George H.W. Bush is on the phone. Wants to talk to Pastor Tennyson. He's not here. Could you talk to him? I said, I guess I could. White House wouldn't leave me alone that day. No. <laughs> Went to the phone. Vice President Bush said, Miss Tennyson, this is Vice President George Bush. Barbara and I are parents and grandparents. Our hearts bleed with yours today. We're thinking about you. We're praying for you. And he broke down and began to sob. Now, folks, I don't know your political flavor. That's your business. But what I do know, I appreciate any man in that position that can feel my pain. Yeah, that's right. 
he began to weep and weep and weep. I mean, not just weep. He was sobbing. When he was able to regain his composure, he apologized. And he said, I am so sorry. And I said, Mr. Vice President, there's not any words you could have said that would have done me any better than what you just did. You felt my pain. And I appreciate that. We talked a few minutes. I thanked him. We hung up. Three o'clock that afternoon, one of the girls came to me and said, Sister Tennyson, Sister Alice Jane Schaefer Blythe is on the phone, and I'll explain to you who she is or was. She's my mentor. She started preaching at 16 and stopped preaching at 101. At 100, she walked a mile every day. I walk around four blocks every morning, push them back on the bed and lay back down. <laughs> I'm a real walker. <laughs> Love this woman. She was the WM director for the Tennessee district for 35 years. Love this woman. She has mentored, mentored me. She's on the phone. I know you'll want to talk to her. I said, I sure do. I talked on three calls that day. I went to the phone, and she said, Honey, I've been before the throne today, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords says you're going to make it. Now listen to me, church. I appreciated President Reagan, but he had limited power, and he couldn't promise me I was going to make it. I appreciated Vice President Bush, but he had limited power, and he couldn't promise me I was going to make it. But I'll tell you one thing, Pastor Ross, when she says, I've been before the one that has all power, and he says, you're going to make it. How many knows that's the most important call I talked on that day? Amen? You can't get any better than from the top. And he says... You're going to make it. Folks, he came walking upon the circumstance that was about to defeat me. That's exactly what he did. And he's still doing that in our lives if we will allow him to do it. He wants to minister unto us in a fresh and a real way. Not only was he praying for me, not only did he come walking upon the circumstances about to defeat me, not only was he watching me, number four, he met me at my point of need. Where did they need him? In the boat. Where did he get? In the boat. He met me at my point of need. My husband, Wednesday, walking down the hallway of our church, going back into the cafeteria. We had a school in our church, and they served hot lunches. So he was going to go back into the cafeteria to get a cup of coffee. And he said, as he walked down the hallway, he said, God, I need direction. I need to hear from you today. Folks, it's time we begin to say today. David said to the giant, today, I'm going to take your head off. He didn't say, if you're still here next week when I come back through. He said, today. God, I need to hear from you today. He said, walking down the hall to go into the cafeteria. Indiana State Police stepped out. And he said, aren't you the pastor? And he said, yes, sir, I am. He said, pastor, I didn't come here to investigate this tragedy. 
I came here to bring a word from the Lord for you. And my husband said, hold it just a minute. He said, let me get one of my men. I'm going to take you back into the office. And the state police said, I want you to put a tape in the recorder. And I want you to record what I'm about to tell you. And here's how he began. He said, the Lord says for me to tell you, weep, my children, weep. But don't weep too long. From this fire is going to come another fire. But it won't be a fire of destruction. It'll be a fire of purification that's going to reach around the world. He said, I've got all of your loved ones in my hands. Every one of them made it. They are with me. I mean, there was a long list of what he told my husband. My husband had it transcribed and passed out to the people. He took his name, badge number. And when things calmed down, he said, I'm going to write a thank you to that state police. He called the headquarters of Indiana State Police, gave them the name and the badge number. They said, we'll call you back, Reverend. A couple of days they called him back and said, Sir, in the history of the Indiana State Police, there's never been a man on the force for that name or that badge number. What do you believe? I believe that God that met us at our point of need took an angel, put him in the uniform of an Indiana State Police and sent him to a place called Radcliffe, Kentucky to say, I'm going to meet this pastor at his point of need. Amen? That's the kind of God we serve. We're going to have to get back to believing in a supernatural God that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all, whoa, that we can ask or think according to the power that's working within us. Shout now, church. Amen. That's the kind of God that we serve. Folks, I could go on and on tonight with testimony after testimony, but I realize it's not a watch night service. So I won't. God said, Jesus said, I was praying for you. I was watching you. Came walking upon the circumstance that was about to defeat you. And I met you at your point of need. When you can't get to where he is, he'll come to where you are. Amen. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's one of the first things I learned from a tragedy. The second thing I learned is this. We have no promise of tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. There's never in the word that it says tomorrow. It says today. Our uh, youth Sunday school teacher came out Sunday morning before the tragedy on Saturday she was crying and I said Wanda what's wrong and she said I was teaching on the rapture of the church today and one of the young men said to me Miss Wanda I've heard that all my life I don't believe Jesus is coming and she and I said what'd you tell him she said I looked at him and said son he may come for you before next Sunday but he is coming Wednesday evening, we closed a youth revival before the tragedy on Saturday. All of our youth was in the altar, rededicated their lives to the Lord, and this young man was among them. And he did not make it off of a burning church bus. We have no promise of tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. 
Third thing I learned, and it's going to get quiet in here because most people don't talk during surgery. I learned how to treat my family. How many knows we talk more hateful to the people we love the most? Let me give an example. Pastor Ross accidentally bumps into me. And he says, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. And I look at him and I smile. And I said, no problem, that's okay, that's okay. You didn't hurt me, I've always looked this way. <laughs> My husband accidentally bumps into me and says, oh, excuse me, honey. And I say to him, what is wrong with you? Are you totally blind? Can't you see where you're going anymore? Now, I love Pastor Ross, but not like I love Don Tennyson. His wife's mighty happy about that. Of course, I wouldn't rob the cradle anyway, honey. No disrespect. <laughs> Why can't I give the same kind words to the man I love the most. How many believes I'm preaching truth tonight? We can be so sarcastic and so hateful at times with the people we love the most. Folks, it's too late looking over a casket and say, I'm sorry, or say, I love you. It's too late. Gratefulness is a virtue that God expects. And listen to me. If the fruit of the Spirit doesn't work in the home, it doesn't work. It's not something I put on Sunday morning when I go to church. You know, I'm sure that children think a miracle takes place on the church parking lot. <laughs> Mom and Daddy fuss all the way to church. Daddy can hit three kids with one swipe in the back seat. <laughs> they arrive at church and the pastor says, good morning. And they say, good morning, pastor. This is the day the Lord's made and we'll rejoice and be glad in it. And those kids think, is that the same people we rode to church with? <laughs> How many believes I'm preaching the truth tonight? We're so free to try to express our feelings with just our family when we need the fruit of the Spirit in our home. My home, in our home, we had to, I kept it waxed on my hands and knees in the foyer. One day, my husband was bringing our son home from school. I just waxed the floor, and Alan stepped his big old foot in on that floor, and I said, hold it just a minute. Who do you think does all this work around here? Nobody appreciates anything I do. Folks, there's a lot of verses to that song, and I don't have time to sing them all. I'm sure you've heard them. Nobody appreciates anything I do. My son said, hold it a minute, Dad. Mother's a little upset. Dad is just a kind, kind man. He said, Mother, what's wrong? I said, 
Just wax this floor. Y'all come walking in on this floor. Who do you think does all this work around here? My husband said, oh, mother, we're so sorry. Don't that make you sick? <laughs> Son, you want to go get some ice cream while mother's floor dries? He said, yes, sir. He'd have been glad to go on anywhere to get out of there. When they left, the Holy Spirit said to me, had that been one of your church members, I want you to follow me. Stepped a foot in on your floor and said, oh, excuse me, you're waxing the floor. I just said, that's okay. Come on in. I can do it again. The Lord said to me, one day that big boy won't come through the door. That day has come. And I apologized when they got home for my attitude. The fruit of the Spirit was not working in me that day. Folks, it's got to work in the home. Our son had worked in the hay fields in the summertime. I remember the day his dad came home and said, Son, I found you a job today. And he said, I didn't know I was looking for one. <laughs> 14 years old. He said, in the morning, you're to be at the hay field. At 8 o'clock, you're going to work for this man for the summer. He had a habit of coming in, turning his shoe upside down, and cleaning out the hay, wherever he was. And I said, baby, why do you do that? One morning after he'd gone to school, I walked into the living room. There's a pile of hay. And I started to get upset. And the Lord said to me, many a mother would trade your pile of hay today to have a child to love and hold on to. Just a pile of hay. Pastor Dean, I still have that hay. As a reminder, one of the mothers in our church, 13-year-old son, came home on a Friday afternoon excited about going on the trip. And she said, you're not going to go on the trip unless you clean your room. And she said, Sister Tennyson, I was upset about something that happened at work. For 30 minutes, she said, I told my son all of his faults. He cried, cleaned his room, cried himself to sleep that night. She said, I didn't see him when my husband got up the next morning to take him to meet the bus. She said, when I realized he didn't make it off, I walk into a room to be clean the rest of my life. On the mirror was taped a note. And here's what the note said. Dear Mom, I cleaned this room for one reason, not because I wanted to go on the trip, but because I love you. And if I never return to this room, Mom... Remember, I love you. She said, Sister Denison, all I have is a yellow note of my last memory of my son. Folks, we're so quick to express our feelings to our family. So quick. You know, we're good in church for two hours. We behave real well. But that's not what counts. What happens at home when the pressure's there? 
Does the fruit of the Spirit still work? How many believes I'm preaching truth tonight? Does it still work? That I can still have kind words? My husband was a twin. Now I was almost a twin, just missed it by one. <laughs> He uh, had a twin brother, and together they were six feet tall. <laughs> My husband's father made it plain to him, I do not love you. I will never love you. I love your brother, but not you. He uh, was very physically abusive. He split his arm open with angle iron, break whole handles over his head. My husband said as a little boy, he would cry himself to sleep at night and say, if my daddy would tell me one time that he loved me. But he said, I don't have to be this way. God has the power to change me. I don't have to be bitter. I will love my dad. I will forgive my dad because I will love my family that I have one day. And he said, I don't have to be this way. Let me tell you something tonight, folks. You may say, I'm the way I am because my mother or daddy. No, you're the way you are because you want to be. God has the power to change you. You don't have to be that way because they were that way. You don't have to be an alcoholic because they were. You don't have to be mean because they were. And you may say, well, our family's just not warm. Well, get to be warm. <laughs> Folks, we can't blame anybody for how we act. We act like we do because we want to act like we do. When we want to act differently, God will change us. My husband said, I'm not going to act like that. I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to love him. And he was one of the sweetest men, my husband, that you ever met. Just, he disciplined our son like this. Come over here, baby. I really need to whip you, honey. <laughs> That's how he disciplined him. Never, never raised his voice. One of the saddest scenes I've ever seen was a father laying over the casket of a 17-year-old boy, and he said, son, I didn't even know you. I am so sorry I didn't even know you. Pastors, I'm going to tell you something tonight. The first church you pastor is your family. That's the first church you pastor. See, churches do not need revival. Homes do. When homes have revival, it's brought into the church. But you need to know, God help me to pastor my family like I should pastor my family. Love them like I should love them. Put them after God, put them next. And then my church comes. But you've got to love your family. Lee Williams said on a Thursday before the tragedy on Saturday, his wife said to him, 
their 10-year-old daughter, Robin, was playing softball. Said she was the worst softball player you ever met. Said she couldn't even hit a basketball. <laughs> Bad. And said his wife said to him, Honey, Robin has found a bat glove that she wants at a department store. He said, How much is it? She said, About $60. He said, I'm not going to pay $60 for a child that can't play softball. And she said, Okay. He said, I went to work. And he said, all morning long, I heard in my spirit, your little girl really wants that ball and bat, ball and, I mean, bat and glove. He said, at 11.30, I said to my secretary, I'm going to take a two-hour lunch break. Don't make any appointments for me till after two hours. And said, I went by the bank, took out $100, went by the school, picked up my little 10-year-old. And she said, Daddy, what are we doing? He said, it's going to be our day. He said, I took her to the department store. I bought her the glove and the bat, bought her a softball. And I said to her, honey, lunch is going to be over when you get back to school. So I said, I took her to McDonald's. And he said, she talked to me nonstop for 45 minutes. Never took a breath at McDonald's. And said, when I took her back to school, she scooted over there and hugged me and kissed me and said, you got to be the best daddy in all the world. And he said, I cried all the way back to post, just sobbed. Sunday afternoon, when he found out he had lost his entire family, he said, Sister Tennyson, I cannot go to the house by myself. Will you go with me? I said, I will. We walked down the hallway of his home the first bedroom we came to was that of his 10-year-old. On the bedpost hung a glove. In the glove was a softball. Across the bed laid a bat. Pastor St. John, he looked at me and said, you can't buy that from me for a million dollars. My last memory of my little girl Listen to me, church, and we all need to hear this. Memories is what we have to live on, either good or bad. It's memories. Now, I tell you what, I'd rather have a glove, ball, and bat than a wooden yellow note. I want, to, I want this to get in your spirit tonight. It's not a shouting message, but it's a message that needs to be heard. Because families need help. Families need to learn to let the fruit of the Spirit reign in their home. Two sisters on the bus, one 15, one 13. The 15-year-old said to her 13-year-old sister, don't ride with me today, don't run around with me today. In fact, if I never see you again, it'll be too soon. Her last words. The 13-year-old didn't make it off. The 15-year-old did. Pastor Joe, we have counseled a 15-year-old girl by the hour. And she said, every time I close my eyes, I see the hurt look on my little sister's face. And there's no way to change it. Folks, we have this moment to live Yesterday's gone, 
Tomorrow may never come, but we have this moment today. God, don't let this message stir me. Let it change me. Amen. Let it change me. That my family will know that I have been with Jesus. That my family will know that the fruit of the Spirit is working in my home. That they will know that I love them. What did I learn? I learned where Jesus was. I learned we have no promise of tomorrow. And I learned how to treat my family. Folks, it changed my life. Totally changed my life. And we need to say tonight, God, change my life. Let me tell you something, pastors. I can tell you this by experience. We can be irritated with things that's happened in the church. We can be irritated with people. And we can bring that home. That can come into our home. Folks, we need to leave the church at church and we need to come home and be a family. Because being irritated with your family about something that's happened they have no control over will not change the situation. But what we need to say is, God, even though this may irritate me, this may upset me, I don't have to bring this in my home. But I'm going to let you do a work in me and let the fruit of the Spirit reign in my life in a fresh way. I'm going to believe as I preach the truth tonight to you. Yeah.